It's here in the city. It's here in the city. This is here in the city. This is here in the city. I'm Sarah Harris. I'm Sarah Harris. New message. Truth should be truth. But then it depends on, in the telling, whose truth is it. We're here most Tuesdays, bringing you radio realities from the urban landscape and mapping the city with voices of creative social change in and around Los Angeles. On Pacifica Radio, powered by the people, thanks to the generous support of you, our listeners, the capable crew at KPFK, the innovators of web-based radio at SoundCloud, news you might have missed at newsdesk.org, and the community-funded reporting project, Spot Us. You can find us on the web at here in the city. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. And you're at the uh, Los Angeles Nishi Honganji Buddhist Temple in Little Tokyo. And why are people here today? To commemorate the uh, one-year anniversary of the uh, earthquake and tsunami in northern Japan. And this is a memorial service, a Buddhist memorial service, to honor the victims of the uh, tragedy. And what are we about to witness? Um, <clears throat> after the service, then the uh, attendees were coming out here and to ring the bell to honor those who passed away by ringing the bell individually. Thank you. Thank you. to ring the bell right oh, now. Oh, you must try it yourself. I was remembering my ancestors because they introduced me to Buddhism in Hawaii and they've all passed away, the whole generation of the people who fought in World War II in the Japanese-American uh, Nisei group. So I was remembering all of them when I rang it. Thank you. Thank you. Have you rang the bell before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have never rang a bell like this oh, that's before. Good one, good one. And I did not plan to do that today. Oh, well, you'll reach the Japan. <laughs> you think? Sure, because uh, you can think of it. Our boys reached the moon. vibration reached the Japan. We hope so today, yeah, yes. It is truth. It's right? the truth. 
Yeah, only only we use the technology that we reach the moon, right? But actually, our voice reaching the moon, uh, people cannot realize. How often do they ring the bell at the temple? So usually, usually this one is used for that uh, time. You know, like uh, uh, in uh, in the Buddhism, they have a uh, uh, how do you call that? Uh, you know, a difficult time like uh, one o'clock, two o'clock, midnight to the morning, like uh, four o'clock. That's a most difficult time. I'm uh, like a board of director of the you know the interface council. So we gathering once a month like a Jewish, Catholic, several more than several in you know, group. We exchange the teaching and we we exchange what we do. And what are you talking about uh, now? We do, uh, what we we usually talk about uh, what we do for community. So it's a uh, how they call. If you don't keep dialogue, they are afraid. You know, if they don't know them, they are afraid. That's uh, one of the fundamental problem. We don't communicate so that we don't know other sides. That's why they fear that, you know, war is coming from that. They don't know other sides, so they fear, so they prepare the, you know, military and they're ready for But If they know them, they, they don't have to prepare, you know. The fear of the unknown. Yeah. If you elevate your life condition, then you have nothing to fear. Right? You know, in the simple ones, a cup of water, your life condition, one is uh, negatively, oh, you only have half of water, another one is oh, half but full of water. So different life condition, appreciation change. That's why we don't know each other very well. That's a fundamental problem of human being. We should know ourselves. (laughs) This is here in the city, and we are here at the Edelman Juvenile Court Complex. It's the only facility in the country that exclusively houses dependency court. There are 20 courtrooms in this building, and the building was designed to be more friendly to children and families. So if you go into a courtroom, you know, all of the furniture is lower, the courtrooms are small, the, the front table where all of the legal counsel gathers just looks like a conference table. There's children's art all over the building. Um, the views were organized so that the public waiting areas have the best views of the San Gabriel Mountains. There are, in addition to the court, to the various courtrooms housed here, there are a variety of nonprofits that provide resources to families and children also in this courthouse. So that's one of the reasons why CASA is here as a nonprofit. Um, Free Arts for Abused Children is here. The Children's Law Center is here. Um, grandparents as caregivers, the 211 resource office is present, the Mexican consulate has a presence. So there are a variety of community partners that are also present in this building to provide easier access to services. So it's a pretty special environment. We're talking to Diles Tostesan Garcia, who's the head of Casa LA, which stands for Court Appointed Special Advocates. I have the, the privilege of 
leading the CASA organization. We are the volunteer organization that helps foster children. We're located in the Children's Court. It's the Edelman Children's Court. It's a very unique facility. I believe it's the only facility in the country. It is entirely dedicated to dependency court proceedings. So there are, you know, six stories here. There are three floors that are occupied by courtrooms and waiting areas where families and children come um, whenever a child is removed from a family for reasons of abuse or neglect, the child becomes a ward of the dependency court. I understand that the foster care population in the city of Los Angeles is the largest in the United States in any urban setting. I was wondering if you could give a little bit of background as to how or why that is or the significance of that from your perspective. The, the, the number that's really staggering is that there are 26,000 children in Los Angeles County, not the city, but the county, that are under jurisdiction of the dependency court. You know, five or 10 years ago, we were talking about 50,000 children in care, and today the number is 26. It's dropped. It has dropped, but it was even lower two or three years ago before the economy tanked. And what we're seeing now is a rise in the number of children entering the system. How is it that um, there, there were these high numbers of children who were either wards of the state or guardians or in some process thereof through the courts dropped and then jumped up? I mean, is there, is there a way that you're looking at that or tracking that and thinking about what's happening in those families in the current situation? It's a big question that you're asking. When, when we look at the drop from 50 to 24,000, which was the, the low that was hit in the county a couple of years ago, I think you're talking about um, a lot of change and improvement in practice in the field of child welfare. The removal of children used to be a much higher, it used to occur at a higher rate. Now there are a lot of um, approaches and programs and resources that work to try to strengthen families before you remove children. And it, it used to be that we were much quicker to remove children in a situation that, that was reported. A child may leave and may they come back to Absolutely. their family. Absolutely, that, that that happens a lot, and and for many reasons is often the best objective. Um, I mean, there there is biology that rules all of this, and and even um, children who have been severely harmed by their biological families will want to go back and be part of that. Um, so the question is, how much can we support really families and the strengthening of families? And I imagine children having the space and time to heal and the services that they need to heal to come back. Do they have an advocate who's with them if they were to go back, let's say, into their family situation? Um, CASA advocates will stay with their child for as long as they're assigned. There are many instances in which an informal relationship develops and the CASA will remain in that person's, in that child's life and vice versa for, for years after the formal relationship 
um, you know, has is over. I mean, there is a really uh, a wonderful basic human connection that feeds all of this work, and and it's really the belief that the attention of one adult on a child's life can change it, and it doesn't really matter whether the child ends up with their biological family, ends up with a new family. The, the, the main ingredient that we provide is the attention, the focus, the, the caring of an adult to a child that has been in a situation where, for whatever reason, they haven't had that. And, and it's, it's just that increase in human attention that is able to create possibilities that aren't there when no one is attentive. So that leads me to ask you the very simple question, which is, what does CASA LA stand for? So our, our dream at CASA is that every child in Los Angeles County who needs a CASA will get a CASA. So the court recognizes the fact that the service is needed, although you're an independent organization. Correct. Correct. We, we are. We're independent. Um, we were in the Los Angeles County area. We were started as a public-private partnership and actually funded by the court um, until the state budget situation developed a few years ago. And at that point, we went completely nonprofit, and we now raise every cent that that covers our operating budget. But for about thirty years, the the Los Angeles Superior Court system actually funded the CASA program, and there was some nonprofit fundraising that supplemented that. But but we were a you know a budget item, and that's no longer the case in the in the current you know budget scenario. Are you able to achieve your operating budget goals? We have been able in the last two years to achieve them because we had um, a stream of federal funding that came to us through um, earmark monies. So we're, we're, we have an operating budget of about $2 million. Next year, for the first time, we will have to raise every single cent of that budget. So we've been very fortunate to have this bridge money from our earmark um, that earmarked stream of funding that we had for a while. Um, but those monies are gone now. And how many children are you serving? We serve um, almost 600 children a year with individual advocates. Our goal for this year is to serve 800 children. We also provide staffing for an area called shelter care at the court that um, escorts children up to court and gives sort of one-time first hearing counseling to children who have been detained for the first time. Um, and we see about 7,500 children a year in that program. They're there to give an orientation to the children so they understand what will happen in court that day. And they accompany them up to court and um, do some debriefing to make sure that the children have understood what has transpired. Um, so it, it's, it's very, it, the service is very basic. Um, but we essentially supplement staffing because the, the court and the Department of Children and Family Services only has so much staffing for that function, and we provide supplemental staffing for that. Knowing that your funding ha has been reduced and that you're looking at raising 100% of your budget next year through private means or through your nonprofit and not with support from the federal or state government, um, 
why or how would you be able to increase the amount of service that you're providing in that situation? Well, we, we have taken the position that the work that CASA does needs to be at a scale that is more in line with the size of the problem in Los Angeles County. So if we have 26,000 children, we our goal is to be able within the next two or three years to at least serve 10% of that population. So our, you know, we, we have a goal to serve 2,500 children by 2015. That's very ambitious. At the same time, I think that people step up for, for big accomplishments, and this is a big accomplishment. This would be a very meaningful accomplishment. Um, and we're trying to really galvanize the community, make people aware of the sheer number of children that need help, and also to make people aware that the solution is really quite simple, that one adult standing up and paying attention the same way that you pay attention to your child's homework. You know, your child's homework happens when you pay attention. These kids are in a much more dire situation, and 20 hours of your time a month could change a child's life. And we think that that's doable. We think that there are enough people in Los Angeles County. We have about 400 volunteers today. We think that we can easily have a volunteer group of 1,000 people that does this on a regular basis and helps us reach that 10%. How does somebody who would be interested and motivated to become a volunteer for Casa LA, what would be the, the process for them to do so? First, I would invite people to come online and check us out at casala.org. Um, all the information on what it takes to be a volunteer and where the information sessions are held, we are out in the community on an ongoing basis. We will go anywhere we are invited to talk about CASA work. It takes about an hour of your time to sit through an orientation session and participate in, in learning more about what, it, what this takes. Um, we have a training program. You know, we're, we're in a constant conversation with anyone who's interested um, to learn more about what we do. The, the, the um, a volunteer generally spends 15 to 20 hours a month working with a child. Um, there's a requirement, a 36-hour pre-training requirement. So we, we do a very thorough job of preparing people for, for the work that they're about to embark on. And we also provide continuing training and continuing supervision. So you're always working with either a peer volunteer, somebody more experienced than you, to guide you, or with a staff person. Um, so there's a lot of support um, in, in terms of, of what volunteers have to work with. Is there a, a vetting process? Is there some sort of screening process that happens when a volunteer offers their services? There is. I mean, the the I mean, first obviously is to make sure that any volunteer has all the information that they need so that they can decide if this is really the thing for them. Um, and we then have an application process that is very thorough. Um, it involves submitting an application, submitting references, participating in an interview. 
um, meeting several people. You meet volunteers, staff people, even when you are actually participating in the training process. It, it, there, there is an ongoing, we're getting to know you, you're getting to know us. Um, because at the end of the day, we don't want to put people in a position where they're not well prepared to do w- what needs to be done. And we also we're working with a population of children that have been let down a lot. So once you commit, you know, we ask for a two-year commitment because we want the volunteer to be able to see the child through, you know, what would be the normal tenure of a case in the dependency system. Well, I want to thank you very much for your time and for inviting us. Um, and we'll be hearing from Rennie Bilson, who's one of your dedicated volunteers. Can you tell us a little bit about her before we sit down and talk to her? Rennie um, had her 25th anniversary of service with us last year. Uh, she has been with the organization for a very long time. She has served on a variety of interesting cases, which I will let her tell you about herself. Um, but in addition, she's also been really uh, a leader within the organization, um, very active on a variety of committees. She's served on the Los Angeles CASA board, and she also has served on the National CASA board. So she really has a very broad perspective on the organization's history, as well as that trench experience of being an advocate and working with children. This is what it is. This is what it's going to be. You are listening to Here in the City on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara. 93.7 FM in San Diego. And 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. An archive and a podcast of our shows is at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. And at kpfk.org, you can like us on Facebook. If you like. And visit us at our website, hereinthecity.org. And follow us on Twitter. This is Here in the City. I'm Sarah Harris. And we are continuing our tour of Casa L.A., Um, You'll see in the lobby that there are clouds as light fixtures just to try to make it a little less difficult when families come here. And we have a wonderful um, area where the children wait that has a lot of facilities that have games, video games, films, an outside play area. I mean, it doesn't change the dynamic of why they're here, but it makes waiting for their court appearance a little less onerous. And this is Rennie Bilson, who you're listening to. Hello, Rennie. Thank you. You're welcome. And we'll take um, a short tour with Rennie to see what the place is like. So um, actually, when you walk in, you'll see this tree is is new. But um, the palm trees, and if you look up, the light fixtures are clouds. Um, And if you look back, the entrance on the other side of the metal detectors is supposed to look like the entrance to a house in some way. See it, sort of. Um, I mean, you have to know to look for it, actually. But that was the idea, was to try to make it less um, intimidating when you come here. Um, And then on the wall over here, we have a whole series of pictures that were done by children that are self-portraits. 
that are pretty, um, I mean, you can't see them, but they're very telling. There's, there's a combination of a lot of really anger and, and some happiness and just a whole combination of, of feelings expressed by the children. Do you remember the, the first case that you started on and how it might differ from cases that you're working on currently that you can talk about? Sure. Um, well, actually, one of my, my first case was um, a teenage girl. And um, at the time, we had a holding facility, a, a, like a, an emergency placement called McLaren Children's Center. And so I went out there to interview her, and my supervisor had given me this whole list of questions to ask. And, you know, because I was brand new at doing this, and a little, a little intimidated. I mean, I'd been trained, but still the first time. So I went out there and I didn't want to use my paper. And um, so I was asking her some questions. And then at the end I said to her, I said, you know, I said, this is, you know, the first, you know, you're the first person I've had as a CASA. And, um, and so I'm just gonna look at my list if you don't mind to make sure I didn't forget anything. So she said to me, she said, I'm your first case, poor you. <laughs> I mean, and so, but it broke the ice, I think, because I was honest about, my situation and then so we built a really good relationship um, and then she ended up actually um, going with her as I recall a long time ago I think it was her father and stepmother that she eventually moved to and then um, but then I had a fantastic case that really got me hooked on being a CASA I was assigned to a little boy who had been abandoned at a hospital um, his mother had shown up with him there he was three and um, she had been hitchhiking and she claimed, this was her story, that she, he found, had some white powdery stuff on his lips and she was concerned that maybe she, he'd gotten into some kind of drugs or something. So he took him, she took him to the hospital and um, he was obviously starving, filthy, very um, neglected at the least. And so the hospital determined that the white substance was nothing dangerous, um, but that he needed to be detained. They, and he call, they called the social services and by the time the social workers came, the mother had split. And all the information that she gave to the hospital, I started to investigate it all and it all turned out to be false information. And here was this adorable child that just didn't, everybody that worked with him felt that he hadn't been abused. So it was a unique thing where we were given permission to use the media and we, a couple of television stations interviewed me and saw, showed his picture. And through that, through a long story and a series of miraculous events, I located his grandmother in Philadelphia. It was unbelievable. And um, the mother had basically kidnapped him. She had a drug problem. But the grandmother didn't have any legal um, rights to him, so there was nothing that the police could do. This woman was her, his mother. So she flew out here, and on Christmas Eve, they were reunited in court. It Have was, you heard from him since? Um, I did. I heard from the grandmother for about three years, um, and then she stopped, you know, contacting me, and I thought, you know what, everybody's life has to move on. And how has the system itself changed? Um, what would be, you know, one or two things that you could say today are so different than they were when you first started? Hmm. Um... Uh, well, we have smaller cases. We have a smaller number of children um, under the court's jurisdiction. Um, there's more of an emphasis, I think, on reunification with family than there was when I first started. That kind of swings a bit in a pendulum. Um, that's a really interesting question. I haven't thought about it. I, I went to um, a retirement party for um, a judge who recently retired, and um, 
He talked about a couple of things that had changed dramatically that when he mentioned them was interesting. Now, when a case comes into a courtroom, it stays in that courtroom. It used to be that there were different courtrooms for different stages of a case. And so the judge didn't have that continuity of history about this case. Um, and I'd forgotten that, um, that that had changed. And um, I, I think... I think that there's more of a sense of, of uh, really trying to work with the family um, to see if we can't make that family be okay for the child. I think that there's more, which is a good thing. In offering services. Yes, yes. I, I think that there's more of an emphasis on that. And every kid wants to go home. Almost every kid wants to go home. So if we can make that family safe, then that's obviously the best solution. We can't always do that. And that's it for Here in the City today. Special thanks to Jesse Lerner, Luis Sierra Campos, Tandisizwe Shimurenga, Daniela Gerson, Sabiha Khan, Albert Chacon, Rachel Salmon, Will Coley, Holly Harper, Karen Ness, and to you, our listeners. We will be back next week with more radio realities from the urban landscape. Until then... You can find us on the web at Here in the City. That's H-E-A-R in the city dot org. I'm Sarah Harris. Signing off. To yapping on. When you go in and out, may you have peace and level and safe. Yes. Be safe. Peace.